0: This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com/excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 10, episode 28.
1: This is Writing Excuses, writing polytheism with Marie Brennan.
0: 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry. And
2: we are
1: going to hell. <laughs>
2: or I'm some polytheistic hell of some kind.
0: I'm Howard. <laughs> I'm Mary.
2: I'm sorry.
1: And joining us again is special guest
3: Marie Brennan. Thank you for having me.
1: It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here. We've, we've talked with you about combat, and you suggested this to us, that we talk a little bit about uh, working religions into our book, and, and or our books, our stories, and doing polytheistic ones and doing them well. Yeah, yeah
2: avoiding common problems that you see. Yes. Yeah,
3: which I I think of, and I, I say this with all due love for role playing games, but I think of it as the Dungeons and Dragons problem, where you have these like large pantheons where everybody has their very well defined spheres, and it all feels like it's pasted on. Yay! Mm-hmm. So, do
1: you have a, a a a quick list of trip trip falls, trip ups, tropes, and um, whatever else?
3: It's I uh, I mean, well, a chunk of it is just that the. The gods end up feeling like very petty people, which is a perfectly legitimate way of doing things. Because especially Greek mythology, sometimes I was going to say it, <laughs> Greek mythology is full but, of but petty But done that. That doesn't mean that's the only way it. Can exactly happen. Yeah. right. Um, and then you know, there there's the question of what is the extent to which the gods are actively uh, being a presence in daily life versus not. Um, And I I usually feel that the polytheisms I see in books are too clean cut. They're too organized and perfect. And I think that can be interesting if you actually deal with this being a a very um, kind of perfectly constructed thing. But most of the time it feels that way just because it feels like it was built out of plastic. Um, I I will give an example of somebody that I thought did this very well. Uh, Richard Garfinkel has a novel called Celestial Matters that is hard speculative fiction or hard science fiction if the science was uh, Ptolemaic astronomy and Aristotelian biology. It's kind of fascinating. Um, But one of the things he does really well is the way that he incorporates Greek religion. Uh, There's a point where the main character is invited to speak at the academy. He decides he's going to speak on a topic of history. And the way the narration presents him coming up with an idea for his lecture, the, the inspiration coming to him, and the presence of the Muse Clio, the Muse of history descending upon him, these are the same thing that there's not a distinction made between the divine presence and the experience of inspiration on that topic, which I thought was beautifully done yeah and that is that is something that I,
0: I often see as well that that kind of thing where um, it the the, the religion does not feel woven into the fabric of everyday life. One of the things that I become aware of, um, when I'm writing, uh, characters from the South and, and granted, this is not a polytheistic religion, but, um, people from the South, one of the things that the, the opening questions that they will ask someone, you know, what, what do you do for a living and all of that? What church do you belong to? And it's, People from outside the South, this is an incredibly rude and intrusive question, but it is so much a part of the fabric of the society that people don't even think about it Mm. as being odd. And so that's one of the things that I like to see when I'm looking at a secondary world religion with with a polytheistic that it's it's so present in their in the way they speak that that it is you know it's full of um, it, it affects everything about the language. Uh, the things that, you know, the, the days of the week. Um,
2: yeah, I one of the first, <clears throat> excuse me, one of those early five novels that I wrote that were terrible and no one will ever read, uh, one of them was...
1: Humble brag.
2: They're, they're <laughs> terrible. One of them was a, uh, a fantasy world that had a, a polytheistic pantheon of gods that had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And what I found after, draft after draft trying to portray this correctly was that the religion has to be, in order to feel accurate, in order to feel true, it has to be so much a part of their lives that the characters themselves can't even be aware of how messed up it is. And so I had to eventually break down and bring in an outsider in order to notice all the weird things.
3: Yeah, if you're trying to present something that is not the way it should be, then the people who are marinating in that environment aren't gonna see it as clearly.
1: A really good uh, recent example of uh, polytheism uh, woven through a series of books is Brian McClellan's uh, Powder Mage, uh, Powder Mage mm. novels, which have a a polytheistic uh, pantheon and the gods, uh, the gods actually manifest themselves uh, from time to time, and that that becomes you know that's important all the way through, um, and it brings me to a question that uh, I think. I think James Sutter raised with us back at Gen Con a couple of years back. Uh, when you're dealing with a, a polytheistic religion, when you're dealing with religion in your, in your fiction, um, is there room for
3: atheists? Is there room for mm-hmm. non-believers? And How do you make that work? It would depend on, I think, how present the gods are in the world, because you can have a polytheistic religion that does not have overt divine intervention all the time. Somebody could absolutely be an atheist. Um, I love the fact that in the, uh, it's a role-playing game and a card game, Legend of the Five Rings. Um, there's actually a group called the Kolat who, they're not exactly atheists. They believe that the celestial heavens exist. They just wish that they would, you know, bugger off and stop interfering with things. <laughs> <laughs> Which I liked as an interesting twist on the the kind of atheism angle of things. It's not that they deny the existence of it. They just wish the, it would leave humans stop alone. stop messing with us Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, what, what Sutter raised was the idea that, you know, you could have atheists in a setting in which the gods are manifesting themselves and are doing things. Um, and I, I liked that thought because, you know, today in the world that we currently live in, uh, we have people who insist that there are no gods and we, are, we have people who insist there is a god and who will ascribe to God or to nature things that they observe, right? How do we do that in our fiction without without feeling like we're setting up straw men? How do we
0: how do we make that kind of thing work? Well, I think I think having making sure that you show a range of beliefs within a range of um, devoutness within within a religion is important, and also making sure even when you've got the polytheistic religion, um, it's not going to be the only religion in the world. Um, Even with gods manifesting, different cultures will interact with them differently. And, and probably, I mean, looking at the way historically our own world works, there's a lot of different uh, interpretations of, uh, you, you take one piece of doctrine and a lot of people will interpret it very, very differently. So even if you've got gods manifesting and it's the same three set of gods, you know, like if, if you've got a... A pantheon of three, not everybody is going to interpret their commands in the same way, because there's going to be uh, not just the gods, but also a power structure built around them. Um, and people invested in keeping that power. And people invested in
3: trying to get back to the one truth. No, this is really the way... And I think Mm. it's important to bear in mind when we talk about the gods manifesting in the world, what exactly does that mean? Because, yes, there are people who will point to natural disasters and say, ah, this is evidence of God's hand in the world. The Garfinkel example I gave, that experience of being inspired was to him the presence of the muse Cleo, Uh, whereas somebody else might just say, oh, that was your brain coming up with ideas. And people
1: around him would say, yeah, that was a really, really good speech you gave. Yeah,
3: exactly. Um, Or are we talking about some glowing figure suddenly appears in the middle? of the room and even then you you run into the interesting philosophical question that i don't think any of us can really answer which is what makes something a god as opposed to just a really powerful entity where Mm -hmm. is the line there is there a line
4: hey writers are you thinking about learning a new language i think exploring the world experiencing other cultures and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer better stories For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Cool. Hey, uh, book
3: of the week. Marie, do you have something for us? I do. It is The Winner's Crime by Marie Rutkowski. I promise I'm not just recommending it because it's another Marie. Uh, Narrated by Justine Eyre. This is a young adult novel that is amazingly political uh, for, you know, if you think of young adult novels, oh, love triangles, etc. This is about colonialism and occupying armies and trying to stay alive in a court full of intrigue. Cool.
1: Cool. Uh, It is... uh, my handwriting was very bad there for you. Sorry, uh, it was the winner's curse, uh, the winner's trilogy by Marie Rutkowski. Rutkowski. Okay, uh, and you can get it at audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a thirty day free trial membership.
0: Um, so a book that that uh, does does this really some really interesting things is the Just City by Joe Walton, um, and the premise of this book is that uh, Apollo that the Greek gods totally exist. And Apollo and Diana decide to set up. Um, well, Diana and invites Apollo to play along. Uh, to set up. Um, oh shoot! Philosophers. Mm. Uh, Plato's Republic. This decides to set up Plato's Republic, and so and they bring people from all through the ages back to help set it up. And so what they have is they have in addition to some greek and roman people they also have victorian era christians and modern atheists who are all trying to deal with the fact that they're talking to athena and it is obviously athena there's like there's no doubt in anyone's minds that this is athena but the thing that they're having just one of the things that the characters some of the characters sit there and do is try to figure out how those two sets of gods which ought to be irreconcilable actually work together. Mm. And so it's really... Trying to reconcile the irreconcilable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, how how do the Grecian gods fit into the Christian pantheon is what they're trying to do. Not having read the book, I suspect that it's a good book because
1: this isn't the narrator doing the reconciling. This isn't authorial voice. We have characters with their own motivations, trying to describe these things. Yes, and, and, arguing, about things. and mm. arguing about it. And arguing um, about it. For me, it always comes back to characters. How do you guys write religion through the eyes of your characters? What are the touchstones for you? Is there a checklist? Are there, are there things you try to stay away from? Are there things you do first?
2: Well, as terrible as this sounds, usually the first thing I try to figure out is... Uh what they are going to swear by or about. Oh, bless Mm -hmm. you. That's
1: where I start first. Yeah.
2: (laughs) You want to curse somebody out. You want to send them to hell. Well, what do they call hell? What is it like? Is being sent there really all that bad? Um, And that's just an easy place to start because it's, to be honest, it's one of the places that we in our world tend to react most often with uh, divinity Mm -hmm. is by... Taking its name in
0: vain. Yeah, well, the, the two things when people are, are cursing, it's the, the the sacred and the profane.
3: Those are the two things. Uh, in, ver- uh, in English, yes. Not necessarily in other languages. That's the interesting thing. Oh, dude, um, speak on. Okay, <laughs> uh, we should have done an episode on swearing. Now that I think of it, um, <laughs> might have been not safe that for work. That would have been though. a damn good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Beep. I mean. English, it's basically like bodily functions and sex on the profane side of things, and then right. the sacred. Um, I know that in one of my college courses, we were reading some. Um, I think it was in the the Zuni stories that we were reading these like folk tales, um, that they have words that don't actually even have a semantic meaning huh. um, that get used for that function. Like they're they're really untranslatable. Um, in Japanese, you have some of the same kinds of things that you have in English, but you also have um, you know, like the, the word for beast, for example, like you can have that angle on it, that it's more kind of the separation between the animal world and the civilized human world. I love thinking of those angles and saying, okay, where are the things that they kind of, um, there's an academic term for this, the abject, what mm-hmm. kind of gets like rejected from the symbolic order and, and kind of exiled from human society. And so what are the things that they abject? What, what do they kind of kick out and then use as their swearing? Yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking
0: about when I was talking about the profane. Okay, the, yeah, the, the 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 taboo things,
3: the 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 undesirable right. aspects. Which I mean, you still get like those zuni words that apparently don't even really mean anything other that's than blah.
1: <laughs> there's a there's a huge overlap between the between the definitions and at some point, you know, the the late definitions of the words are all the same thing. Uh blasphemy, profanity, and obscenity. Yeah, uh, And I like to think of those in my own head as three separate things. Mm. Where blasphemy is where you are saying something about the gods that the religious leaders will say is false and you need to be, you need to be prosecuted for. Profanity is when you are swearing by the gods in a way that you shouldn't. Uh, and obscenity is when you're talking about something that's just gross and maybe you shouldn't. Yeah. And for me, the fun comes in when I start mixing them up. <laughs> you know, mixing up the blasphemous and the obscene.
3: I'm glad that you brought up blasphemy, actually. Um, there's a, a G.K. Chesterton quote that I won't be able to give verbatim, but he talks about how blasphemy is a function of belief. And if anybody doubts that, let him try to seriously blaspheme against Odin. Like, you know, unless you're a follower of the like modern Asatru religion or something, it, you can't say anything blasphemous about Odin because you don't personally believe that he exists. And so belief is a, a prerequisite for blasphemy to even be possible. Otherwise, you're maybe just saying something foolish or rude or whatever. Huh. Cool. That is really cool.
0: And that, that, that also falls into the thing of like when you're, when you're building a polytheistic religion, people are going to have different relationships with Different, you know, mm-hmm. different uh, members of the the pantheon, and so so the the Bejold's, swears. Well, I was going to say that the, the words that they curse by are going to vary based on who they are a primary follower, you know, who yeah. the, their their own priorities.
1: Bejold's, uh series that began with Curse of the Shalian has a uh, a official four god pantheon with a uh, with a fifth god that not everybody believes in. And the folks who only believe in the four gods, uh, if you insist that there's a fifth god, they cut off your thumb. <laughs> because because now there's, there's only four. Now you can't count that high. Um, <laughs> That's a nice... But, but that whole series, that yeah. series does a really good job of yeah. weaving the polytheism through the characters, through the cultures, yeah. and mm-hmm. letting, us, letting the characters actually interact with the gods in a way that you know, when it happens... And this is, for me, this is why I like religions in books. I want the characters to have a religious experience that is powerful. I want the numinous. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. And that's when I'm the most disappointed, frankly, is when the religion, then like, you know, these gods show up or something, and they're just not numinous at all. They just feel petty. Because mm-hmm. even the Greek gods, I would say, they they kind of act like people, but they act like larger than life people. And if they're going to show up on the page, I want them to feel like they are more than just human. Yeah. I want that moment where I stop breathing. Jacqueline Carey does this beautifully, I have to say, with um the, the first three Kushiel books, I, I haven't read past that. but
2: That's cool. That uh, goes back to what you were saying earlier when you, you talked about it as the D&D problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the gods in Dungeons & Dragons do not have any sense of wonder to them.
3: Yeah, you know? none at all. This sadly. god is
2: just the guy who fills my divine magazine full of celestial badgers that I can summon when necessary. <laughs> um, and yeah,
3: clerics in particular are so yeah, disappointing.
2: There's, there's no sense of...
3: Yeah, the two things that I want out of religion in a story are if it's going to show up in a direct fashion, then I want it to feel numinous. And whether it shows up in a direct fashion or not, I want it to feel like a lived part of the character's lives. I want it to be interwoven with what they do, how they speak, Um, you know, the the blacksmith who goes into his forge and before he starts hammering on things does his brief little bit of worship to the shrine of the god of the forge, whatever. Or else, I want it to be a thing that, okay, here is somebody who does not engage with that. But I want that to be a conscious decision rather than just, oh, the writer forgot to actually incorporate it. And and the reader needs to see it as such. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering, as we're talking, if if it's important for the deities to have goals of their own, if that's part of what makes them seem flat sometimes. And I'm thinking about. In McClellan's
1: works, they do.
0: Yeah, well, uh, and
1: and, I, and it's and it's critical to that. I don't know that it's critical in the Chalienne books, though.
0: Yeah, because I'm I'm thinking about real world examples. I mean, Zeus's goal is to get in everybody's pants, <laughs> <laughs> and he succeeds admirably. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so like, Demeter wants to keep.
3: Harvest going and but I, like, uh, I don't want them to have goals in the same way that a person has a goal yeah. necessarily it's it's more i mean they should be forces of nature sometimes literally right that they mm-hmm. are um kind of the distillation of a particular impulse. It's not so much that Demeter hmm. really wants a good harvest as that is what she is. she doesn't have a personality that desires that as a separate thing, huh.
2: uh-huh. yeah i the, uh, the sword books by uh, Fred Saberhagen have, you know, this whole pantheon of gods, recognizable earth gods, um, that do have very specific wants and desires, and they are playing a game with mortals. And that's part of the thrust of the story is that they're not really divine. You know, that yeah. kind hmm. of human hmm. emotion and human behavior lessens them, and they eventually just they're all just disappear. They're just really
3: powerful
0: entities. Yeah. yeah. You know. So these are all things that are fun to play with, which brings us to your homework for this week. Um, so what we have for you is, is a toy. Uh, this is something that one of my students built. Uh, Kate Hamilton built a belief system generator, which is fantastic. It will give you um, divine myths and origins, major deities, all of these things. And it will give it to you for multiple... Uh, religions existing in the same world, which is great. What I want you to do is I want you to go to this and the, the link is going to be in the liner notes and just generate a religion. You can generate more because it's actually kind of fun, but but the first one, because this is random prompt, p- the first one, what I want you to do is I want you to write a prayer that fits with this religion and the prayer can be for anything you want but write a prayer that fits in this religion and think about how that infuses the rest of the world. Outstanding.
1: You are out of excuses. Now go write.